Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, teacher friends. We are here today with a really special guest, and we're excited to have Emily Hanford on the show today. So, Lori, I'm so excited because um, you know that I've listened to all of Emily's podcasts herself, and that they are amazing, and I listen to them over and over again, and I rave to Lori about them. So, Lori, I'm so excited to have Emily today. How about you? I know, me too. I especially, Emily knows this because I tag her all the time on Twitter, but I love to listen to Emily's podcast while I'm running, and it really pumps me up because I get so angry about um, the topics and like what she's talking (laughs) about, and I get really into it, so I just run faster and faster. So, Emily, thank you for improving my mile, and thank you for being here with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I wish I were a runner. I, I like to listen to podcasts <laughs> while walking quickly. <laughs> That's also a good one. A good one. Walk, walking here, around the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Emily's brought a lot of really great things to light in these podcasts that are conversations that I think need to be happening. So we'll we'll be touching on some of those today in our podcast as well. So I think we'll let Emily introduce herself really quickly. So, Emily, if you want to take a moment to introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Uh, So, my name is Emily Hanford, and I am a reporter. I've been a reporter for about 25, I guess going on 26 years now. And um, I've been covering education for about 12 years, and I got really interested in this question of reading, how kids are being taught to read and what scientists have discovered about how reading skill develops about three years ago. So for, I'm going on year four now, spending not all of my time, but most of my time um, on this topic of early reading instruction in particular. I've been mostly focused on, so far, kind of the K through two, K through three, like the very early stages of learning how to read and how kids are being taught. So as you mentioned, I produce podcasts, there have been uh, three big ones over the past three years that I've done, and then a few others kind of uh, have come out um, as, uh, as sort of follow-ups, uh, and, I, and there's articles on our webpage. So I work for an organization called APM Reports. We're part of American Public Media, and we have a podcast called Educate, and that's where people can find the podcast that I've done about reading. And we also have a webpage, actually, where we've collected all of the work that we've done on reading. So it's apmreports.org forward slash reading and you can find all the podcasts and articles there that's so great thank you emily did you and know I- that um one of your podcasts um took takes place in the school district where my daughter goes to school which i often am like talking about on this podcast um and i also <laughs> used to work a long time ago in that district um and it it's interesting that you you did that dyslexia podcast on using that school district, like as um, you know, the example for what was happening, like the lens into what was happening, because I really felt that when I was there, I felt the same way. And I was like, kept looking around and thinking, does nobody else feel this way too? And it really drove me to move in my career from, you know, being a teacher to being in more of a leadership role. Cause I wanted to make more of an impact and have, um, you know, some, some, um, 
authoritative power to make some changes that were really positive for kids. So I don't, I didn't tell you that, but I thought I would tell you that now while we're on the pod. Yeah. Are we naming the, are we naming the district? It was the Baltimore County public school. It was Baltimore been, um, County. hard yeah. to read. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah it was, it was the documentary that the, the podcast that I did that really got me interested in this. So I was initially interested in children with dyslexia and yep. why they have such a hard time getting what they need in school, because that is what I was finding. Um, I was talking to parents all over the country and I was hearing the same, like the same exact story all over the country. And it was about how their kid went to school and the parent knew something wasn't quite right. And the school kept telling them everything was fine. And the parent was saying, well, my kid's not really reading. And the school, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, the school is basically saying to the mom in many cases, um, it'll all work out. We just need to find him the right book. You just need to, we need to motivate him to read. You need to make sure you're reading to him at home. And it didn't all come together for many of these kids. And uh, that's what that piece looked at is sort of what is dyslexia? Why are kids having such a hard time getting identified with dyslexia? And then more importantly, getting the right kind of help. Because one of the things that would happen is that parents would sometimes at great cost of time and money, they would, they would succeed in getting the schools to acknowledge that their child was having real struggles with reading and might have dyslexia. They would come in with often a, a paperwork that cost them thousands of dollars to get that said, look, mm-hmm. this, this shows that my kid has dyslexia. And the school would finally acknowledge that, but the kid wouldn't really get uh, very good help. Uh, the school would say, oh, yeah, okay, well, we can, you know, we'll, we'll put them in this intervention or that intervention. And it wasn't really helping. And I was meeting all of these parents who had essentially given up on the public schools teaching their children how to read. And these parents had options. I mean, in many cases, it was not easy for them to come up with the money they needed to pay for private tutoring or pay for private school. I've heard of people remortgaging their houses in order to do it. Uh, But they were able to do it. And um, one of the moms in Baltimore County said to me, and I think it's one of the things that got me going on this topic for several years, what she said is, we're in a situation right now in American public schools that, for the most part, certainly with some exceptions, but if you have a struggling reader and you want to make sure that they learn how to read, it's a rich man's game. And uh, what she meant by that is that uh, schools are not providing the appropriate help, and you can pay for that help. You can make sure your kid learns to read. For the most part, you can ensure that if you have the money. But if you don't mm-hmm. have the money, what do you do? And that's what really got me onto this topic. And then, you know, to, to move along, I think the connection here between dyslexia. So what I, what I learned as a reporter is that I think the, at root, the reason a lot of kids are not getting identified with dyslexia and getting the right kind of help in school is because at the end of the day, again, with some exceptions, for the most part, many people in education are not being taught what scientists have figured out about how skilled reading develops and what schools and teachers need to do and could be doing to make sure that more children develop good reading. And because they, they haven't had the opportunity in many cases to really learn about what's really almost 50 years of scientific research on how skilled reading develops, because they haven't learned that, what happens is that when you're forced with a, a struggling reader, like a kid who is struggling, you don't really know what to do. But the root of the problem is just sort of a misunderstanding or a non-understanding of reading skill and how it develops. 
So it's hard to yeah. know what to do when a kid is struggling. Yeah, and Emily, yeah. can you talk a little bit? Lori and I actually have this conversation often of like the science of reading is now like the new like term that everyone's throwing yeah. around. Like if that's what, you know, if we just follow the science of reading, then everything will be good. But I don't know that everyone really knows what that means or is using it in the same way. Um, I know that, you know, my, my view, I see some people using it as just meaning phonics instruction. Um, so can you mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about like what that, like what does that actually mean, the science of reading? That's a great question. Really <laughs> important question. And you're so right. I mean, it's now a term that's being tossed around and it's great yeah. that people are talking about it, but it becomes a problem because it now it's tossed around and uh, who knows what people mean when they say that. And mm-hmm. it's very easy to sort of appropriate that term also to be like, oh, we're doing the science of reading. And yep. um, you got to look inside, you got to look inside that box. So here are a few thoughts, like what, what, what is the science of reading? So I think when a lot of people think about the science of reading, and maybe they weren't even calling it that, like when they think about like, well, reading research and what do we know about reading and what kids need to know? I think a lot of people at a surface level know about the sort of five pillars of reading instruction. And this kind of came out of the National Reading Panel Report, which was now Mm -hmm. about 20 years ago. So what we have out of that, and I think most teachers, not all, but most teachers know these five pillars, right? So they're phonemic awareness, understanding the sounds and words, the speech sounds and words, phonics, understanding how the letters and words are represented by sounds, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. So people know these five things, phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, comprehension. And, and what's, what's been able to happen is people are like, oh, well, we do all that. Check that box. We do all those things. <laughs> And publishers can be like, we do all those things. Check that box, right? The problem, I think, is, and this is, this is what really sort of shocked me as a reporter, as I dug into the actual research. So there are like decades of studies that have been done in classrooms and in laboratories uh, all over the world, not just in the United States. Like there's a whole bunch of people who are reading researchers and they're they're um, educational psychologists and they're cognitive scientists and they're neuroscientists and linguists. There's this big body of work. And I, what that body of work has really shown is that it, I think these five components have led people astray, right? Because the question here is, what, how, does skilled, how does skilled reading develop? You can't just do all of those things. Like, what do you do when and how do you do it and at what intensity and for how long and what all adds up to skilled reading? So, for example, mm-hmm. comprehension is one of the components. But comprehension yeah. is really the result, right, of a kid having good mm-hmm. phonemic awareness and phonics and vocabulary that those things help them become fluent readers and developing reading yeah. fluency helps you comprehend what you're reading. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's so, so when I math, I, it, everything is intertwined in, uh, in reading and literacy, whereas math is more, much more skill-based. So and that's what's going through my head as you're talking. I'm like, oh, literacy is so much harder than, than math. <laughs> Every, yeah, and everything goes things, together. Yeah, it, it does all go together, but at the same time, what this big body of scientific research really shows is that there's sort of like a, a progression. There are like things yeah. that happen in, in an order. I mean, and it's not, this, it's not like an order that you can like clearly map out and, and things influence each other, right? Like so, yeah. so, so get better phonemic awareness develops your phonics. And, you know, like at, 
all these things kind of intertwine, as we know from Scarborough's Rope. And I, I think Scarborough's Rope and the simple view of reading are two things that are really important for teachers to understand because that, I think, is the science of reading. Like, if you understand the simple mm. view of reading first and then Scarborough's Rope, which I think is really just sort of a more complex and nuanced look at what's inside the simple view of reading. But mm -hmm. the simple view of reading is um, the place I begin when I'm saying, like, what am I talking about when I'm talking about the science of reading? So the simple view of reading is basically this model that was proposed a long time ago in the 1980s by reading researchers who were trying to disentangle some of the stuff that had become and remains very controversial about reading. So it, the idea of sort of what's the role of skill, and in particular like decoding skill, in becoming a fluent reader who can comprehend what they read, because everyone agrees that comprehension is the goal, right? No one who knows the science says that there's any reason <laughs> to teach children to read except to get to the point where you comprehend what you read. But the question is, how does a little kid get there? How does a little kid get there? And so the simple view of reading is so helpful um, because it basically says that reading comprehension, being able to read the words on the page and understand what they're saying and get a message from it, is a product of two things. So it's a product of your ability to identify words in print, decode them, or know what they are, and that becomes complicated and interesting how we do that, times your vocabulary, essentially. So like your ability to decode the words on the page times, do you know what those words mean? <laughs> yeah. So th the fascinating thing that I think a lot of reading instruction today has kind of gone amiss in sort of thinking that like when a child enters kindergarten, you kind of start doing all of these things at the same time, sort of in the same amount. And if you just put a lot of things in that bucket, you do some comprehension, some fluency, vocabulary, phonics, phonemic awareness. If you do a little bit of all of that and you give the kids books, they'll become readers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, what really happens is a child comes into kindergarten and most kids, if you think of the simple view of reading, have very little or nothing on the decoding side of the equation. So they don't know much about how to read words yet. Uh, some kids know a little bit about that, but most kids really, they don't have much on that side of the equation. They do have something, and in some cases they have quite a bit on that other part of the equation, which is like words they know how to say. So kids come into mm -hmm. kindergarten and they know words, thousands of words, many yeah. thousands of words. We know some kids know many more than others which is actually one of the things that contributes to their reading development, right? So your spoken vocabulary, the size of it when you enter kindergarten, if you have a big spoken vocabulary, that's going to give you an edge on getting to reading comprehension because you've already got a whole lot in that part of the equation. But if you're a yeah. kindergarten teacher or first grade teacher and you've got a bunch of kids before you who have a a, a decent, they have something on the language comprehension part of that um, simple view of reading, but they've got close to nothing on the decoding side. What do you want to focus on in your reading instruction? Well, you want to focus on that decoding side, the various things that go into the decoding side, because what you want to do is your, your sort of first task is to get kids' decoding ability up to their level of language comprehension. That's like one of the first things you want to do. And you can, you can do that in kindergarten and first grade. And many kids can kind of get 
start to get kind of close to their language comprehension by maybe the end of second grade. Um, but, you know, what's fascinating is the research continuing to show that kids' sort of language comprehension tends to exceed their reading ability, their word reading ability, all the way through later elementary and up into middle school, perhaps. It might not be until like eighth grade that kids really sort of even out because what's happening is that kids are continuing to develop their language comprehension, and they should be, and school should be helping them do that. So in a kindergarten classroom, what you want to see are sort of lessons and, and, and specific attention to helping kids with their decoding ability. And, and that really is not just phonics. That's really like helping kids understand how their written language works. And we can return to that later. Like English is actually a kind of difficult language to learn. We can talk about what it takes to learn English. But kids need to be beginning to understand how written English works in kindergarten. And then you need to continue to develop their language comprehension. And that's especially important when it comes to equity, because what we know is that kids come into kindergarten with different levels of language comprehension, and that's often, not always, but it's often associated with family background in some way, with the educational level of your parents, with the affluence of your family in terms of your, your family's ability to buy you books, take you to places that are going to sort of expand your vocabulary and knowledge, take you on trips, expose you to things, right? There's a correlation between family income and language comprehension, and research shows us that. So if you want to make sure that your reading instruction is equitable, that you are like going to, because we, we know there's like a quote-unquote achievement gap already in place in kindergarten. So you've got to focus on the decoding ability, and you've got to focus on expanding language comprehension to try to raise sort of both sides of the equation at once. But again, you started next to nothing on the decoding side. So that's what you've got to like emphasize. So that's why people who, science of reading does not equal phonics. It does equal phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, comprehension. It does equal all those things. But you've got to understand how one thing leads to another, how things develop. And if, you're, if you are focusing on the science of reading, you are focusing on that code side of it at first because that's what kids most need. But you're also developing the other side of it. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a situation where there's always a big correlation between family background and reading ability, because if you're not expanding kids' vocabulary and their knowledge and their ability to comprehend what they read when they can read the words, right, then you are just baking inequity into your system. But, and this is the thing that I think teachers really need to understand, because we've kind of, there's kind of this narrative that if, the, if your classroom is sort of like phonics and skills based, based, that that's kind of what like that like the really good schools and the schools where like the affluent kids go and stuff they don't focus on that stuff you know they focus on the more fun stuff like the getting kids the books and getting them reading right away but the key here is that the decoding ability is like the greatest gift you can give a kid early on if you have a kid coming in who doesn't have a lot of language comprehension what the research shows us very clearly is once you can read the words the way you develop your language comprehension and is through reading. That's one of the best ways to expand your vocabulary and your knowledge. So mm-hmm. one of the things you want to do at the very beginning is make sure that you make sure all kids are off to a good start in decoding because it's their best bet for gaining knowledge and it's the, it's the best bet for kids from poorer backgrounds to catch up to their more privileged peers who have an edge on the language comprehension side in many cases. Yeah. Emily, I, I feel like you just talked through so much 
stuff, if you will, um, in terms of I, I pulled up Scarborough's rope and I'm looking at it and I just want to do like a quick little, um, here's what I'm understanding about what you're, what you're sharing is that that core instruction in terms of meeting the word recognition. So the bottom part of Scarborough's rope, which is phonological awareness, decoding and sight work, sight recognition. So familiar words. Um, that's really addressed in a systematic foundational skills program that would level the playing field for all students at a young age. So as they're entering school, kindergarten, first, second grade, and it would get them to be on level together because they're accessing those systematic skills, right, that they need in order to decode and um, be able to read so that then they can move to the top part of the rope and comprehend. Um, and I think what we talk about, like for our listeners, is a lot uh, on this podcast is um, that language comprehension part. So we talk a lot about the top part of the rope in terms of um, a knowledge building curriculum that has rich vocabulary and language structures in the text so that really both parts of the rope um, you're addressing right now and what, and what you're talking about. But I just to kind of like frame it for those listening, um, we talk a lot about the language comprehension part on this podcast for the top part, um, but you've done a ton of work with the word recognition part. And we want to really bring the message that like the science of reading is the entire rope, all five pillars. And, you know, I was really excited to hear you say that because I think the Twitter verse is, um, you know, kind of defining it as just the, the lower part of the road, just the word recognition part, the foundational skills, whereas really um, I, I'd love to, like, redefine it on this podcast in terms of, like, pop culture and just it's the whole road. So I'm happy that you shared that. Um, is there anything that you feel like people should know in terms of, like, if someone from Twitter is listening right now, like, why do you <laughs> think that it was defined as, um, that bottom part, like what gave it that initial, oh yeah, science of reading. It's definitely the word recognition piece. Like what happened? Why did that become the pop culture definition? I think a couple of reasons. I mean, I think partly because that bottom part is the part we fight about for the most part, right? So that <laughs> is the part that has been very controversial. And I, 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 I think that the work that I've done that is focused a lot, and I'll say that my work has talked about the language comprehension part. I mean, I've described the simple view of reading, for example. Like, I, I, yeah, I think from yeah. the get-go, it's been very clear to me that it's both parts. But I think the word recognition part, I think, has been um, a, a little bit forgotten. Um, and I, and I, it, in, in terms of kind of like, what is really up with that? You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people are like, well, we do phonics instruction. You know, we have like a 20-minute phonics block. But I, what I think has been missing for a lot of educators is why. What is it? Why is that so important? What is it about word recognition? And what role does that play in the whole piece? Um, as you can see, it's, it's, it's sort of the, these things happen at the same time. But without good word recognition skills, you can't become a good reader. Same thing without good language comprehension, you can't become a good reader. So I think one reason the focus has been on word recognition is because it has been missed. And it has also been done, I think, kind of poorly. It's been a little bit like check the box, we do some phonics. 
and um, without an understanding on teachers' part of what is so important about that. And understanding the phonological awareness part of it, I mean, I think that there's a lot of phonics instruction, stuff that goes on in the name of phonics instruction out there that may not be um, helping kids as much as it could because some of the phonological and phonemic awareness stuff is missing. And (laughs) the sight recognition thing is not well understood. Um, Mm -hmm. Word recognition, the sight recognition does not mean one of the things you do is you do some phonological awareness activities. You do some decoding stuff, and then you give kids a bunch of sight words to memorize. <laughs> no. Yeah. Phonological <laughs> awareness and decoding, the, 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 what that sight recognition is, when, when scientists talk about sight words, they typically mean something quite different than when educators talk about sight words. So educators talk about sight words usually as those, those words that kids just have to memorize, either because they're mm-hmm. really frequent in text, right? And so if we're going to get kids a book, we need them to just memorize some words that are too hard to kind of help them understand in terms of the spelling patterns because it's too complex. And that's true. English, unfortunately, some of our most common words are words that kind of have the wackiest spelling because they're some of our oldest words. They come from the Anglo-Saxons, and the Anglo-Saxons pronounce things very differently than we did. And so, um, so anyway, you, you'll tend to have these, like, lists of sight words, which are, like, high-frequency or high-frequent or irregular words. And, you know, I think there's a good discussion to be had about, like, the role of sight words. And there probably are some words that you want kids to just kind of memorize to give them access to books early. But I've seen some really long lists of sight words. And I see that the way that the teaching is done is just memorize those. I mean, you kids are given flashcards, and they're told to just, like, memorize those words. But when scientists refer to sight words, it's not some word that you've memorized by looking at flashcards and you know what the word looks like. Or what it like sound, you know, it's what's happened is you have orthographically mapped words into your brain. And we could talk about orthographic mapping if you want. But basically, orthographic mapping is this thing that happens when you connect the pronunciation of a word with the spelling of the word and the meaning of the word. And if you have exposure, if you're like a typically developing reader, like you don't have or severe dyslexia, you don't have a reading disability, and we can talk about what that is too. But if you're like a typically developing reader and you are exposed to a word a few times through those three things, an understanding of the pronunciation, an understanding of the spelling of it, and an understanding of the meaning of it, what happens is those that like it's glued together in your brain in this way that that word is now instantly and automatically available to you the next time you see it. So what happens when you're a skilled reader, you actually know tens of thousands of words instantly on site because you have had exposure to them through the spelling, the pronunciation, and the meaning. So that's what a sight word is. And that's what, that's what fluency, that's how fluency develops. You have a lots and lots of sight words where you just know them automatically, not because you memorize them, because you understand something about their way, the way they're spelled and the way they're pronounced. And... Um, what happens is that when you have a lot of words that are instantly recognizable to you, you can go along and you can read, and you don't have to spend your energy figuring out the words. You might come across a word you haven't seen before, and then you have to call on your phonics knowledge and give it a shot to sound it out. And you may sound it out and realize, like, oh, yeah, that's a word I know the meaning of, or not. I can give you an example of that if, if you want with my, son, with my teenage son. Um, so here's an example of orthographic mapping. Yeah, give us so an my, example. <laughs> yeah, okay. So my son was in about 10th grade, 
and he was reading up something out loud to me, and he said the word epitome. And I stopped, and I was like, wait, epitome? And I said, do you mean epitome? So if people don't know that word, so epitome is epitome, E-P-I-T-O-M-E. So he gave it a shot. He tried to sound it out. So when I said epitome, he said, oh, and he had this like kind of light bulb went off. He was like, like, you clearly kind of heard that word before. Maybe had sort of a gist of it kind of idea of what it meant. I don't know if he really did. Um, And we talked a little bit about the meaning of the word. And then, uh, so what happened, I think, in that moment is he he had probably heard that word before in spoken language. He might have come across Mm -hmm. it before in text, and he had come to it and been like, hmm, epitome, don't know that word, skip over that block. But now in this moment with his mom, reading out loud to his mom, he had had that kind of eureka moment he needed to connect the spelling, the meaning, and the pronunciation of the word all together. Now, maybe the next time he comes across it, he might like pause for a second, but a few more exposures to that word, and that kid has got that word. That word is just known to him instantly, and that's what we need to have happen. But what you can see in that example, one of the reasons I think that example is so important is that it shows you that reading comprehension is not just decoding ability. I mean, he had mm-hmm. some decoding ability, but because of the English language, he was like, what the hell? Epitome. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> he didn't know what that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what had happened is he had read it out loud to his mom, who knew that word. I know that word. I've heard it. I've spelled it. I know the meaning of that word. So he decoding, it's about so much more than decoding ability. It's about having a mom who knows that word and points it out to you. It's the fact that I think he had heard that word before in daily conversation. So this kid had gotten to 10th grade. That's not a word that's used in conversation a whole lot, but he had heard that word. And that said something yeah. about his background and his opportunities, right? So that, you know, he, he, now he's in college and they, they, he's, a, he's a good reader. But a lot of things have come together for him that have enabled him to be a good reader. And his phonics knowledge, he's got, he's got a decent amount of it because he really cannot be a good reader without having a good understanding of English spelling and how sounds and words are represented by letters. Um, but it's much more than that. So anyway, that's orthographic mapping. So that's what word recognition is, and that's why we're teaching kids phonics. We're teaching kids phonics so they can do that orthographic mapping thing so they have tens of thousands of words in there sight word vocabulary, they know them instantly, so that it frees up their mental energy to not have to try to identify the words as they read. They know the vast majority of them. And then when they come across, they're reading like a science textbook when they're in high school, or they're reading a novel and they come across epitome, then they have a moment of being like, oh, got to pause for a second. Maybe I got to go, you know, now you can go Google it and you can just play the pronunciation of that word. Um, so anyway, that, that's what we're heading for. And that's, so I think that's why... Um, this word recognition part. I think that the debates about reading have been stuck in this strange debate about sort of phonics versus whole language, and that, in, or, 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 and, and sort of more large, like the larger one is like, should teachers focus on kids um, focusing on the meaning of what they're reading, or focusing on like the decoding what they're reading? And and that doesn't really make any sense. You need, you, need, you need decoding to get to meaning. <laughs> and so I yeah. think that's why there's a focus on it, because it's, I think it's been forgotten and it's not being very well done in many schools because teachers don't have a good understanding of the written language themselves, perhaps because they weren't taught it. 
Um, and, and because, uh, I, you know, what I've been trying to do in my work is try to help reframe this debate. It's not sort of phonics versus whole language. It's understanding the role of phonics in becoming a skilled reader. And you just don't get to skilled reading without having a good basic understanding of how the sounds and, letters are, uh, sounds and words are represented by letters. So we can just hope that kids kind of figure that, you know, we can teach them a little bit of that and hope that they kind of put it all together, and some kids do. In fact, many kids do. You know, maybe 40 or 50% of kids, it doesn't really matter how you teach them, they are going to eventually figure it out. But two problems here. There's a whole bunch of kids who aren't going to figure out unless we teach it well. And number two, we could actually accelerate the learning of a lot of kids who do eventually kind of put it all together by third or fourth grade. They could be putting a lot of that together by second grade, and they could be developing their vocabulary and their knowledge even earlier um, because it's multiplicative in nature. Uh, and there's this thing called the Matthew effect, which is like kids who get off to a good start in reading then have access to building their knowledge and vocabulary through reading. Kids who don't get off to a good start don't. And the Matthew effect is basically, it's a biblical reference. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And it happens with reading really fast. It happens right away. And we got to, like, prevent that from happening. Um, but, but even the kids who become pretty good readers, the research really suggests that if we taught them better how their written language works earlier, they could probably become better readers they could become better spellers, and they could become better readers earlier <laughs> and get off to a good start in kind of acquiring all the knowledge and vocabulary that we want children to get out of their educational experiences, K through 12 and beyond. Yeah, um, oh, you hit so many good points, Emily. And I think like here in Baltimore City, um, I feel like we're in a pretty good place to, where we recognize the importance of this word recognition, and that is something that we're focusing on as a district. Um, and I, and what I actually like feel is, you know, in education, we like to like swing the pendulum to one side or the other, right? People yeah. have a hard time with finding that middle place. And so, you know, some people in the district are like, well, let's just focus on that word recognition then and get that down in, in our kindergarten, first, second grade. Um, and there's definitely like good people in place who are saying, wait, no, because it's not just about that short term, like can they recognize the words in kindergarten and first grade? But if you're not building that vocabulary and comprehension and or background knowledge um, in those grades as well, like the long term, like you're not setting them up for success later on too. So I'm glad you were yeah, talking even, about Even on something like third grade reading tests, I've looked at some of the sample stuff from third grade reading tests and th there's a significant amount of stuff you need to know. <laughs> To do well yeah. in those, like good, good coding <laughs> ability is not going to lead to good scores on a lot of third grade reading tests. There, there, <laughs> I've come across some kind of hard questions on some third grade reading tests that really require mm -hmm. the knowledge part. So it, it, it is a big mistake to think that all you need to focus on is on the word recognition part of it. But we need right. to get much better at that part of it because I think we have really been yeah. weak as a nation yeah. on the on on that part. However. I would like to add that I'm not so sure we've been so strong on the language comprehension part. I mean, I think a lot of mm -hmm. people who have, are proponents of balanced literacy, and we can talk, that can mean many different things to many different people. But I think one of the things that balanced literacy sort of put out there is like, well, well we, we will do some of this like phonics and word recognition stuff, but we're really going to want to spend most of our time on this other part. And we're going to be really good at that. We're going to make sure kids get access to books and 
develop language and vocabulary. And I don't know that balanced literacy has done the best part on that other side either. I think it claims to do a good part on that, but whether or not we're really building good, complex vocabulary, really building knowledge in kids with some of the things that are out there in the name of balanced literacy or some of the things that teachers are creating on their own in the name of balanced literacy. Many teachers don't have access to good knowledge-rich curriculum, as I know you know. And so I, I think we've got a problem in both parts. It's not like we just have to come in now and solve the word recognition side. We've got to look carefully at what we're doing on the language comprehension side and make sure that that is really a value add for kids and is really helping us, you know, with the equity part. Because the, the language comprehension part is actually the harder part for schools to deal with. Right? Like the, the more skills-based stuff in decoding is stuff that really is quite teachable. There's lots of different mm-hmm. ways and programs and approaches to teaching it. Um, but that stuff is teachable. But language comprehension continues to develop through a human being's life, through their exposure in their environment, the opportunities they get access to. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer with that right away. And schools there's like a heavy lift for schools to do to really come in and try to even that playing field because the kids who get access to all those opportunities continue to get access to all those opportunities and kids who don't, don't. So it's especially important if you're trying to, you know, sort of the affluent kids are going to continue to develop that sort of no matter what the schools do. And the affluent kids are going to get the basic word reading skills sort of in some Mm -hmm. cases, no matter what the schools do, because either it will kind of come together for them because of the way their brains work, because they they have advantages when it comes to developing reading skill anyway, right? So if they don't have any problems with decoding, if they don't have a brain that's on sort of the dyslexia spectrum where that is particularly difficult for them, then it kind of, no matter what the school does, it'll the word recognition and the language comprehension stuff will kind of come together and will equal by the end of high school in like a a good reader and a well-educated person. But, you know, what, what kids who have a hard time with that word recognition part, if they're not learning it in school, well, what happens, as I said at the beginning, is if you're from a family with resources, they, they notice that you're struggling with reading and they have the ability to do something about it and they can find good tutors or they can find a good private school and that's not everywhere in this country. I mean, there are parts of the country where those don't exist. But if you can get your hands on that, then you can kind of like take care of the part that the school isn't doing. Um, and, and, and that's really, I think, why we have so many opportunity and achievement gaps in this country. And if we, there are no silver bullets, but really if we could get reading instruction right on both sides of this equation, all parts of the rope, I just think we would be giving all kids a much better chance to not, to have opportunities to get more education, learn more, acquire more knowledge and vocabulary than maybe their parents had the opportunity to. That is really the way that they can get ahead uh, in in our society, which has a lot of other structural problems, which make it hard for them to get ahead too. But at least we can do is make sure that they become good readers. We agree with you. That is a ticket for them. Yes, we, yeah. we agree with you, Emily. Um, the one thing you're making me think about right now is, do we also feel like, like I know in the previous podcast you shared that story where the mom said, and obviously very impactful, um, that dyslexia is a rich man's game. 
do we also, like, could we also translate that into knowledge building curricula or access to the top part of the rope is a rich man's game? Because, and the re- only reason why I'm bringing that up as a question is because I'm wondering if school districts who have the funding to purchase curriculum um, that is, you know, high quality curriculum that will provide the continuous um, really like scope and sequence that is needed in order for kids to acquire that knowledge and vocabulary over time. So over a series of years, um, because I always like to think about the, not just like the one grade level that the kiddo is in right now and the one experience with this one teacher in this one classroom, but really like thinking about it as their educational experience, right? Over the course of several years, um, over the course of, their K-8 experience and what that looks like and feels like. So do you mind, like, responding to that or talking a little bit about that as I kind of pitch that idea or throw that around in my brain? Like, do we think that that's something that is, like, an accurate statement? Because I'm thinking, too, like, in terms of teacher PD, right? You're going you're gonna to get that PD if your district has the money for it. You're going to learn about um, the simple view of reading and and learn about all of the things that you need to know um, that you share teachers need to know if your district has the money to pay for it or if you are a pre-service teacher who is going to a college that aligns with this research. So I know I just like dumped a whole bunch of things on you there, but um, <laughs> would, you, would you mind like talking just a bit about any of those um, in terms of like the rich man's game? Yeah, I mean, I think you raise um, a really important point, and I think what you're describing is certainly a dynamic out there. I think it can happen, interestingly, the other way, too, though, because I think one of the things that might be happening is in your more um, affluent districts, in some ways, there's not as much urgency, and I think there should be (laughs) if they look carefully at their scores, uh, because first of all, in some of our, like, high-performing districts, it's shocking to me, actually, to look and see what the reading scores really are because there are a whole bunch of kids who are not reading proficiently and are reading below basic. And if you dig into that by family income and race, it's also really shocking. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, in a lot of poorer schools, there, there is and always has been sort of more urgency about the question of we need to try to do something different. And I think a lot of lower-income schools end up becoming um, sort of volleyballs in this, you know, game because we have different ideas at different times about what we're going to do to try to help these schools. Um, But when it comes to reading instruction, I think one of the things that's happening is that many affluent districts might have purchased some of the things that are thought of as kind of like the best of the best in, in the tradition of balanced literacy that we've really had in this country for a long time. And without kind of realizing that um, maybe they could be doing something better too. Um, that, that number one, many of these districts are able to take advantage of, frankly, the fact that if they're not ter- teaching the word recognition part, a, a not insubstantial portion, I think, of those students will get the help they need anyway because their mom and dad will write checks to make sure it happens. So those schools are kind of riding on the fact that it will, get, it will kind of get taken care of by parents if need be. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it shouldn't. And that's, I mean, it's actually like basically illegal for parents to have, I mean, for schools to not do that. I mean, school, schools are denying those kids a free and appropriate public education. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is I think 
I think one of the things that's happened in our discussions about reading is there's kind of been a sense that when you look to the affluent districts, the really the higher performing suburban districts, when you look at what they do in K through two, you think, well, if we have a, if we're like social justice minded, if we're, if we want equity, we want to bring that to all kids. We want to take whatever you're doing in your high performing district, like let's make sure that everyone gets that without maybe asking the question, is that really working? in the high-performing district, or is some of it kind of working in spite of itself? And so bringing it to the lower-performing district starts to raise the question, is this really producing skilled reading, or is skilled reading developing anyway? And there are some things going on, obviously, that are helping kids, and I'm not saying there's nothing good, but, but could we be doing better? Could we even be doing better on the knowledge-building side? Um, and I... I I think those are just, like, good questions to be asking um, right now. And, Emily, I wonder, like, this is going to sound like a kind of silly or flippant question, but if, if the science of reading, like, we know what should be happening, right? Like, you're saying all these, you know, it's not always happening in schools. It's mostly not happening in schools. What do you see as, like, where, what, why aren't teachers being trained in this science of reading, and why don't they know that, and why aren't, you know, why, why aren't we being armed with what works to, for everyone to use? Like, what's, what's getting in the way? Well, I mean, I think you asked the, <laughs> the, the big question. The big question, the big question. I mean, I think, I, think it, I, I think at the end of the day, it gets down to the fact that we really, um, for some reason, there's just, we do a lot of arguing about reading. There's a lot of deeply held beliefs about how children should be taught, and it's, when you get into reading, it gets into some bigger questions just about the role of just like sort of direct and explicit instruction. And we really have a, um, a, um, a tradition in this country, I think, that's that a lot of people have bought into, parents and teachers, that that's not such a good idea, that kids don't really need that kind of direct and explicit instruction, that they can really learn through sort of guidance um, and the teacher creating the right kind of environment and opportunities. And with reading what you discover is that the, that the beliefs that kind of undergird that are really that sort of at the end of the day, reading development is sort of a natural process. I mean, it's not saying there's no role for schools or teachers, but kind of it will, like what the parents with the struggling readers are being told, like it'll come together in time. You know, once you find them the right book and you motivate them, it'll all work out. And it does for some kids, you know? So I think the reason that teachers aren't being armed by this is because there's just been, uh, there have been a lot of people who have been in charge of teacher preparation and doing the teacher preparation who have believed and they believe it. I don't, I don't think there's any, I don't necessarily think they're ill-willed here. I think most people want to teach teachers how to teach kids to read and teachers want to teach kids how to read. But for some reason, um, there's just been sort of a set of beliefs and ideas and assumptions about how reading develops that's just kind of held sway in schools of education, teacher preparation programs, among curriculum developers and sort of prominent literacy leaders in this country. And, and that's what I've been trying to do in my reporting is sort of be like, well, wait a minute, what are the assumptions here? And do these line up with what these scientists have really figured out about skilled reading? So that's the other problem is that like on your typical university campus or whatever, you have the College of Education and people doing certain kinds of research good, really interesting research, but sort of like a vein of research that hasn't really crossed paths with the vein of research that's been going on, you know, like across the quad 
where people are starting to do like fMRI imaging, the neuroscientists and the cognitive scientists and the linguists who study language and stuff like that. Like there's been this whole other body of research that's led to this understanding that's still being figured out. It's not like everyone knows all the answers to these questions, but the reading science has developed a pretty robust and solid kind of model. The simple view of reading is the basic model. Scarborough's work is the basic model. Like those models are reaffirmed consistently um, by research. And it's just like um, no one like walked across the quad <laughs> to see like what the other person was doing. So I think that's kind of a simple reason why. And it's, and, and like, you can't just walk across the quad with your research because people have their research that has led them to believe other things. And they're like, well, why, why, why should I buy that? And then you get into this kind of, he said, she said war. Um, and I, you know, and, and, and people will push back against my work all the time. Well, there's this whole other body of research, but I think the problem is there's this body of research that sort of led to an idea about reading that is at odds with what this cognitive science and neuroscience and this, uh, this other research has shown. And so, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you can have your academic freedom to be like, I believe that, or I believe that, but this scientific research is so many fields over so many decades now that really has led to an agreed upon idea about skilled reading. And that idea is not as present as it needs to be in teacher preparation and in curriculum and in what goes on in schools. And so it's still controversial in people's reputations and feelings and money's on the line. Like this is not a small thing. Um, so that's why I think that's happening. But, you know, I think there are exceptions. I think people are understanding. Many people are having their eyes open. I mean, many people write to me all the time and they say, like, I, I didn't know this. You know, I, yeah. I, like, I had, you know, I mean, a teacher wrote, and I felt so angry. Here, this is a quote from a teacher. I felt so angry and guilty when I was finally taught the basics of reading science. I thought, how did you let me teach literacy without knowing this? Yeah. And yeah. at the end of the day, this yeah. is not, oh, it's not fair to teachers. It's not their fault, but yep. they need to be taught this. You, you don't know what you don't know. That's true of everyone all the time. <laughs> no one ever knows yes. what they don't know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, that's what I think. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the recent NCPQ findings around the teacher preparation for, for reading. Um, and they, they found a, a huge increase like many more teacher prep programs are preparing teachers to teach reading, but it was still like, I, I'm going to get it wrong, but maybe like 49%. Yeah, um, it's about half. And that's kind yeah, of like, the yeah. headline is great. So I think there is an increasing awareness that teacher prep needs to change. And I think there's an increasing awareness among teacher educators. You know, I, and I think the NCTQ um, research has been valuable and there's a lot of other research that's important for people to understand that indicates that teachers are not being prepared to teach reading. NCTQ is not the only one because I know there are many people mm -hmm. who don't like the way that NCTQ has done it. And the truth is an NCTQ um, acknowledges this. They, they're, they're, they're doing a very big broad survey where they're looking for the most part at um, syllabi. And, you know, what's on the syllabi and what actually gets taught, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's a version <laughs> of checking the boxes. So everyone's talking about the science of reading. So you would yeah. now be kind of, it would be a big mistake, really, for you to, like, not be like, oh, yeah, we teach phonics. We teach phonemic awareness. We teach all, you got, you can't, you, it's hard to sell a product if you're not, you know, aware of all those things. So like, you got to be aware of the science of reading. But just because it's on the syllabus 
doesn't mean it's being taught or maybe being taught well or taught enough or yeah. do, do the teachers actually understand it. So, you know, that's an important thing inside those NCTQ findings is to get inside the box because there are some people in different states. Mississippi is one, North Carolina is one, where they've done sort of more robust kind of studies. Not only have they collected the syllabi, they've observed classes. They've done interviews with professors. They've done interviews with candidates to try to get, like, what did they really learn? And those yeah. are not very, um, those, are not, those are not very comforting findings. <laughs> and, again, that maybe things are changing. But this stuff doesn't change quickly. So if it, starts to, if it starts to change quickly on the surface, you have to ask your question, like, did it really change? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I think it's an open point. question. That's a good point. It makes me think about a class that I had in college um, called Children's Literature, where literally every time I went to class, the professor would just read beautiful children's books out loud to us. And at the end, we had like a <laughs> celebration of all of our, I don't even remember what it was, but we had, I remember there being a celebration and just thinking like, is this like, what am I going to do with this information? How am I just going to read? Like I envisioned myself <laughs> as a teacher just sitting there reading books to kids all day, reading, because this is, I mean, that was one of my first courses. And I'm like, is this what I do all day? Do I just read books aloud at the carpet? Like, and I was a traditional elementary ed path. So um, I hope that, that I can go back to that college and see some shifts, um, you know, 17 years later. <laughs> but So I have heard that exact same anecdote from a number of teachers. You know you're not alone. Where they went in, I know. It's the first half of class was just, reading literature. So you've just, there's like two really important questions. Like you can sort of laugh at that now, but kind of yeah. like at a serious level, like what's the assumption about how reading skill develops that's embedded in there? The assumption right. is that if you read books to kids, that they become readers. And again, like we have just have this research shows that's not the case. It's not enough. Mm -hmm. Learning to read is not something that develops naturally. Our brain, we're not born with brains that are wired to read. The brain research is fascinating on this one because they can actually show that like you take a kid before they learn how to read or you take an illiterate or illiterate adult and then you teach them how to read and you can see changes in their brain. We, our brains change when we learn how to read. And so again, some kids, reading to kids is super important because it, it, it builds all that, it begins to build that vocabulary and knowledge and like understanding how language works, which is essential to understanding what you read. So yes, indeedy, reading to kids is great, but you can't leave it at that. And um, we've been sort of like a little bit too much, kind of leaving it at that plus a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> like we, yeah. And now it's like we got to do that and a lot more. Otherwise, yeah. a I'm, lot of kids are not going to learn to read well. Some will because they have the brains that are just going to put it together or mom and dad is paying for a tutor because they're struggling and the mom and dad are fixing it. And those are the two ways that kids become good readers in a system that essentially assumes that. And then there's everybody else, the kids yeah. who do not get read to a lot, do not come in with an edge on the language comprehension side, and the kids who have those brains. And again, that's most people are not learning. Written English is hard because learning to read is hard, number one, because we don't have brains that are born to do it. And number two, English is actually one of the, of, of, of an alphabetic language, it's probably the most difficult, French is hard too, it's probably the most difficult language to learn because yep. you can't just teach phonics actually 
because we have a morphophonemic language to get all nerdy on people, but it means that <laughs> our spelling patterns are based on the sounds in, 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 in the words, but also on meanings. We have like meaningful parts of words. We have roots and prefixes and suffixes, and it comes, we, our language is actually like comes from many different languages. We're this melting pot language. We've got some Greek and some Latin and some French and some German influences, and we keep bringing in language, you know, stuff from other languages. And like I said, we have our our ancient the Anglo-Saxons, and they spelled things really weird. And so mm-hmm. our spelling today is a result of all that history. So you got to teach kids basic spelling sound correspondences. You can actually sound out more than 80% of English words if you learn just some basic stuff about some basic spelling patterns. But then you got to learn some other stuff, too. you got to teach kids. You can teach kids in kindergarten, like, you know, why it's phone, P-H-O-N-E. Oh, it's Greek. We have all, we have, you know, P-H makes the sound in a bunch of words, and a lot of those, those come from, from the Greeks. And isn't that fun? And, and like, so you got to teach that. But you know what? Teachers need to know that. Teachers need to understand that. So not only do they need to be taught, and this is where it gets really hard, not only do they need to be taught this stuff about the science of reading and to understand how skilled reading develops, they got to understand their written language. Um, and yeah. that... And many of them don't. And just because you're a good reader, I'm a really good reader. I don't understand a lot. Like, I can't tell you a lot of things about why the English language is the way it is. I would need, and I've been learning some really cool stuff through this reporting. That's one of the things that I love about this. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm learning all this cool stuff about the English language. But to be able to teach the English language, you really need to have, like, a knowledge of a bunch of that stuff. And the teachers themselves weren't taught that for the most part when they were little kids. And they're not being taught it for the most part in their teacher preparation. And that's why this is an intimidating conversation, because you're telling me I need to teach kids how the written language works? Well, for good reason. I don't really understand how the written language works, you know? And so that's why this is hard and intimidating. And it would be so much easier if all we had to do was read books to kids and create a nice environment where they did some, they, they met in some small groups and they got some books and they did some guided reading and stuff like that. It would be much easier if it worked that way. Yeah. It's a good point. Uh, so Emily, we always ask our guests at the end of each podcast to leave our listeners with one piece of advice. Oh, so I remember you told me that <laughs> and I forgot. Oh, okay. <laughs> so with all of the incredible wisdom that you shared today, and I just want to say thank you, by the way, because I feel like Absolutely. you just you make all of this so accessible for everyone. Um, you know, whether you're an educator or just um someone who just wants to learn more about the educational system. Um, you just you your reporting makes all of this so accessible and so we thank you for bringing this to light, but, you know, we also thank you for your accessibility in bringing it to light. Um, it's not very intimidating to listen to you talk, and so we appreciate you so much and all the work that you do, um, and hopefully that bought you a, a few, like, 10 seconds to think of a piece of advice. <laughs> um, but we would love to hear, like, if you could just look some folks in the face and say, what? Like, what would it be? So I think, I mean, I think I sort of want to appeal to people's um, curiosity about this. I don't know. Maybe this is a weird piece of advice. Like one of the things that kept me going on this topic for all these years is not only because I think it's so important, some of the things I've expressed, I think it's just like so key to equity in education, which is something that I've been concerned about in my entire career as a reporter, especially as an education reporter. 
But the thing that's actually kept me going in this is just how fascinating it is. But I recognize that I'm a reporter and I can like read a book about reading that kind of blows my mind on a Sunday. And then on Monday morning, I just get up and call the people who wrote the book. And that's like the awesome job I have. (laughs) Like if you're a first grade teacher, you read the book and then the next day you're like, oh, yikes, I got to teach first graders how to read. So I guess, I mean, my advice is, the other thing I think, this isn't turning into advice, but the other point (laughs) I guess I would make is um, so much is known about reading skill and how it develops. But it's true that translating this into practice is hard and messy. And it's not, I don't know that anyone's really figured it out. You know, like I, yeah. I don't, it's not like there's like a book or a curriculum or anything. People write to me all the time, you know, from school board members to teachers. Well, what should I do? Like, what do I buy? <laughs> what do I, you know? And, you know, because it, it, really at the end of the day, as we all know, teachers teach kids how to read, not programs or materials or anything. It's, but teachers, like, deserve access to the knowledge, deserve access to good materials, shouldn't have materials that are teaching them sort of incorrect things about how reading skill develops. And that's what I've been finding in my reporting. And so I guess I would just... I. I one, you know, some people say to me that this work is, um, that the work I've done is sort of demeaning to teachers or critical of teachers. And I, I just don't, I, I have so much respect for how hard teaching is. I did a little bit of teaching early in my career, and man, is it hard. I mean, it's really hard to do it well. Really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm just leaving. It's not really advice, but sort of empathy for the task of translating into practice. Because I think we're behind on the materials and things we need, so it's a little unfair. We're having this big conversation that I don't know if we have enough stuff to offer to teachers yet. Be like, oh, yeah, do this, do that, know this, read that, you know. Um, But I guess it's just kind of like my advice is, like, keep at it. Like, this is interesting. I I think all teachers want to teach their kids how to read. I think engaging with the scientific research will, many teachers have said, it's like huge aha moments for them, huge moments where they're like, oh, yeah. Like, I kind of knew in my gut that I always had some kids, or maybe I always had a lot of kids who weren't really getting it. And as I read this stuff, I'm like, oh, I, I see that now. There's some things I, I need to be doing differently. I could be doing differently. So I would just appeal to the teachers listening to, like, just go with that. And also, this stuff does not change overnight. Like, there is there is a lot to this. <laughs> I don't think the country's going to mm-hmm. fix this problem fast. But I do I do think that um, it's it's really about teachers. It's about what teachers do every day in their classroom. I think all teachers... Uh, with maybe a few exceptions, but teachers have the best interests of their kids. And so I would just appeal Mm -hmm. to people to sort of be open and go down the road as it sounds like you've been going down, which is why so many people listen to your podcast. So I would say, listen to more of your podcasts and just stay open to it all. (laughs) That's my advice. (laughs) Thank you. We like that. Thank you so much, Emily. (laughs) You're welcome. We really can't thank you enough for being on today. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. And I know I talk a lot. My gosh, I like to actually ask questions more than talk. But if you, people ask me questions, I just go on and on. So there you go. <laughs> I now, could listen to you all day. <laughs> yes. And thank you, for, thank you again for being here. Thank you for your work. Um, it's just, it's so special to have someone who is not a traditional educational, you know, person 
come into education and really understand it so deeply. So thank you for all you've done to do that and, and to just be here today and, and share all of this knowledge that you know with all of our listeners. So thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Hope to talk to you soon. <laughs> all right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye.